Hey, what does Christian mean? Christ followers, I heard. I heard Christ-like. The word Christian is two words, right? Christ and Shan. So Christ, um, obviously, is Messiah, Jesus, and Shan is just the, the English word like. So again, it does mean Christ-like. And so really our, our, our goal, our vision, the Bible says in Acts that they, they were first called Christian in Antioch. And the, it was kind of a, a, a chide a little bit from the Jews, but in the book of Acts, they began to call them the way. Um, and that's where, you know, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father through me. And then the Bible says that, that they were first called Christian in Antioch. So that's, that's 2,000 years ago where that term began that we go by today, um, Christian. And basically it just means Christ-like. It means that, that we desire to be more like Jesus in our lives. You know, we talk about often, the Bible says that, um, when, that, that, that the very um, firmament and the handiwork of God declare his glory. So that means that, that and, and there's no such thing as an atheist biblically. God has created in every one of us uh, an innate understanding and desire that there is a creator God, and it's undeniable. The Bible says you have to willingly believe a lie to confess atheism. But the one thing about creation, you know, we can go out and, and I think, you know, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been personally was in Alaska. And um, this particular day was, um, you know, it's snow-capped mountains, and they're just green as you've ever seen. So you got the snow-capped mountains that are just green and full of colors and all kinds of things and waterfalls coming right down the, 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 the mountains. And, and, you know, the Bible says you can't look at that and not know that there's a creator God. But what creation doesn't tell us is anything about this creator. It creates in you um, the, 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 the knowledge that there is a creator God undeniably. But what it doesn't do is really give you any personal details about this God. In order to, to see that God loves you, the mountains don't tell you God loves you. The mountains just tell you God exists. But in order to see that God loves you, that God's personal, that God's intimate, um, God gave us Jesus. And he became man and he, God came out of heaven. He humbled himself. He, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And, and the whole idea was when we asked this question, what is God like? What is the Father like? What is God like? He, he says to us to look at Jesus, that Jesus was the living example of what God is like in the flesh. And that, you know, our lives as, as Christians are to follow Jesus, to become more like Jesus. That's really our goal when we get up every morning is each day to become a little more like Jesus. I see here looking at Pat, so that means the youth group hasn't been dismissed yet. Sorry. You guys, this youth group is dismissed. You know, I've been given, uh, I talked to somebody on Sunday. I, uh. I, I think, you know, I got to be careful and, 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 you know, I'm blessed and I have a certain, I, you know, I always tell you guys that I'm, as a pastor of a local church, I'm, I'm doing ministry alongside you, right? Like I have a certain part of the body, but every part of the body, your part of the body is as important as my part of the body. I just happen to be the mouthpiece for the local church, but without the hands and the legs and the arms and the heart and those things, we don't function. And, and when God looks at our church, he doesn't give me any higher, um, you know, praise or anything else for, for being the pastor. Actually, the Bible says I have more um, responsibility and more accountability as those who teach the Word of God. But the, the Bible describes us as a body, which means that we all have different functions. And I might be the obnoxious mouthpiece, but the mouthpiece doesn't, doesn't wrap without the heart beating, you know, and the church is the heartbeat and, the, and every part has a body. And when we get to heaven, God doesn't give us rewards based on what part of the body he called you to be, but how what? Faithful. Everybody say faithful. 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 You have to know this. You have to know this. I preached this to 
I'm blue in the face. It's based on faithfulness to what you've been called to do. So maybe God's called you to um, change diapers and, and love on the babies in the church so that the parents can receive the gospel or be ministered to. And so you faithfully serve in Sunday school. Your, your faithfulness is what God looks at, not which, whether you're in the pulpit or in the Sunday school changing diapers. And when you get to heaven, when God says to you these words, enter into thy rest, thy um, Welcome, thy good and faithful servant, enter into the rest of the Lord. That, um, that, that, that reward is going to be then based on, we're going to face a thing the Bible says is called the Bema Seat of Christ. There's two judgments that are very prominent in the New Testament. One is the Great White Throne Judgment. As believers, we won't stand before the Great White Throne Judgment. That's for non-believers. But as believers, we will stand before a judgment called the Bema Seat Judgment. And what the Bible says is that it's like the, um, it's like the game show, No Whammies. And so you get this little whammy thing and you stand on the other side of the fire and you say, no whammies, no whammies, big bucks, big bucks. And then everything that you did in life, the Bible says, is going to literally go through the beam of seat judgment or God describes it as a fire. And he says the things that are wood, hay and stubble, what do they do in a fire? They burn up. And so um, wood, hay and stubble would would. Oftentimes, the things that we put into that fire that the Bible talks about storing up our treasures in heaven, those things, is based on motive, right? Because the concept of biblical um, um, works is, is just as much based on your motive behind what you did as much as what you did. So when we give, um, we like, you know, we need, we appreciate big checks, but you're not rewarded based on how big your check is. You're rewarded on um, what did it cost you or how faithful you were or what was your faithfulness in, in giving that. You know, the woman gave two pennies and lots of rich men came in church that day and Jesus happened to be sitting there and they gave way more money, you know, if it was thousand dollars or whatever they gave. And she, she gave two pennies and Jesus said that her, her reward was greater than all the rest of gave who gave way more because he wasn't basing it on what she gave, but the motive behind how and how she gave. So, so would hay and stubble go through this? Um, Bema seat judgment and then the things that are gold and jewelry and, and, and diamonds and these things what do they do in a fire they're refined and they come out better so whatever comes out the other side is is our reward alright rant over let's open our Bibles is the rant over yeah I guess hey couple quick announcements um, Christmas Eve is um, important for us as a local church. It's one of our greatest opportunities to share the gospel with our community, um, with your family and your friends. And so we really encourage you guys on Christmas Eve to be bold in inviting and bringing. And, you know, I, I don't really know. Um, um, I don't even really know what, where they, how they get these statistics. And, you know, so I should be careful quoting them. But, um they, they say that, that like 60, I think whatever the number is, don't worry about stats, they say 80% of stats are made up, and um, I just made that up. So, um, But a certain, a large percentage of people would be willing in a survey, would be willing in a Barna survey, would be willing to come to church if they were invited. And, and I believe that's true. I believe that, that, that I think we think there's a big reluctancy for people to come, but if you'll invite them, there, there's a good chance they'll come. And Christmas Eve is always a, a great opportunity for us to invite folks. If you invite them, we'll give them Jesus. Um, and so we, uh, we're going to just celebrate Jesus. And the Bible says, if you lift the name of Jesus high, God says, then I will draw all men unto myself. And so our vision here at our church is always just to lift the name of Jesus high. And as we lift the name of Jesus high, then God does the work. We don't really have to do the work. We just have to really give God glory. And we'll, we will be doing that on Christmas Eve, 4 and 6 o'clock. So, and then one kid performance at, somebody help me out, at the 4 o'clock service. So, and then they have a special kids event this year on Friday night at... 
6 o'clock. Okay, so we got that. And then also the second announcement is um, on Wednesday night starting, what did we say, Lydia, January 15th? January 15th, we're going to change the Wednesday night format. So we're changing um, the Wednesday night format without the long version of the announcement. Basically, on Wednesday nights, we're going to continue. We're going to do our songs in the beginning like we did. And then instead of me coming up to preach, we're going to break up into groups, into life groups. Or in, Actually, on Wednesday nights, it's just going to be men and women. We're going to do women's study and men's study. We're going to cancel the Tuesday night women's study, make it all on Wednesdays, and then add the men to that. We wanted to add men's study and couple study to, to church, but it's just too much for you folks. You know, if the guys come on Sunday nights and the girls on Tuesday and everybody comes on Wednesday and couple study on Thursday and church on Sunday morning and then kids program on Friday night, you know, it's just too much. And, and with the, the, the size of church that we are, it's too much programming for the church. So, but we, but we have um, felt like there's been a, especially the guys, I've been getting a lot of pressure because you're like, when's men's study going to start? When's men's study going to start? And I get it, but we've just, been trying to be careful that we don't overprogram everybody. And when Lady Study started, you know, Lady Study's always a big hit and well attended. So, um, so this is our solution. So we're going to go to a new format Wednesday nights, and then Thursdays we're going to start a couples um, home fellowship, and it is specifically for couples. So if you're single, I apologize, you do get left out of Thursday nights because it is for couples, but you can have you have Wednesday nights that you're you can come and be a part of and um, or you could start a singles ministry and meet whenever you like and I'll support you and I'll help you until you get married out of the singles ministry and join the Thursday night group. Yeah, so um, and then our vision for for couple study and home fellowships is to um Lydia and I will host it and we'll try to train and we'll try to identify some folks and ask some people that, that want to um, host or teach. And so we'll try to make it too. Sometimes if you're teaching and hosting in one house, it's difficult. So maybe there's somebody that has a gift of hospitality that will use their home, but they're not the teacher type and don't necessarily want to lead a, the study. Um, so we or maybe somebody's willing to do both. And, what, and then what we're going to try to do is in the next season in the fall is break up whoever's meeting in our house on Thursday nights into um, some separate groups, maybe a group in Grantsville, a group in Stansbury, Tooele, maybe Stockton, depending on what we what we have and who we get and teaming some people up. And and at that point, trying to identify some what we call life groups, you know, where people about the same age doing the same thing in life put together. And I'll tell you the, the vision for couple study, just so you know, off the bat, I don't make no bones about it. I don't hide it. It's, it's about fellowship. It's for fellowship. It's for it's for having fun. It's for meeting people. It's for it's for just just us to hang out as other Christians. And I think one of the things, you know, especially in Tooele, where, where evangelical Christians are less than one percent in Tooele. And that's that's an astronomical stat. And it's true stat. But you got to go to like Serbia to find numbers like that. You really do. It doesn't exist anywhere else in the United States other than northern Utah. So, um, so we want to we want to create friendships and life groups, and we want to see where you know people are doing life together, and you have a birthday party or a, a, a wedding or something that it's your church family that's a part of that. You know, when we Lydia and I do marriage study, I think we're going to start with uh, our staple. We're going to go through, and then as we as we as we go on, you know, we'll. Again, we'll get together, eat, have fellowship, hang out. We want to keep it Christ-centered, so we'll do either book studies, meaning like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll study a, a Christian book or we'll study a book of the Bible or we'll study something on marriage or we'll keep it Christ-centered that way and hang out for the first hour, kind of pray and talk together and study something for half an hour. And um, 
And then also with that, we're going to try to, Thursday night's division will be to have the child, have the Sunday school open, the room open, so that you can drop your kids off here with the, with the Sunday school, and then come to Bible study, and then come back and pick up your kids. So, kids, child care is always kind of a hard thing to figure out for home fellowships. So, We'll have to kind of cross that bridge when we get there. But for the first season, while it's in Lydia and I's house, when we have been asking, I think you guys are aware now, we've been trying to hire a few folks, adults and some kid helpers, so that um, we can we can just have some paid staff to watch the kids for two hours on Thursday night so we can do a couple study. There was a, um, there was a stat, and I had quoted it a bunch of times, and it said that, that the divorce rate in the church is 50%. And it said that the divorce rate um, in the world is 50 percent and so it was like the church isn't doing any better than the world in the area of marriage and you know i I quoted that because that was the the going stat and um i'm so thankful that and it always bothered me right because i'm thinking like this can't be true like we have to be at least a little better than the world and you know and i've personally been a part of lots of marriages and lots of lives changed through jesus and but there, um, there's not a new book, but there is a, a new study. I was so thrilled. But the, the, the stat that said 50, 50 and 50, it includes anybody that by name says they're Christian. So if you say, yeah, I'm from Texas, I'm a Christian, you, you were included. Whether you go to church or not, if you just self-identify as a Christian, you were included in those numbers. So they redid it, on a more, and, and, and they didn't do it based on who said they were Christian or not. They did it based on folks that attended a, a local church on a, on a monthly, weekly basis, you know, two, three times a month at least. And the church was absolutely way better, way better in the area, praise God, for real people that are really going to church and, and, and doing life with Jesus and other Christians that, um, that we are better at marriage than the world. So kudos. All right, now the rant is definitely over. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, open them up to Second Kings chapter 1. I was super excited when we finished last week on this leading up to tonight because and then the following week we had something go on and then the following week was first worship, Wednesday worship, and we couldn't get back to it. And now I totally forgot where we were and what it was all about anyways. But I was super excited when we left off a couple of Wednesdays and nights ago. So let's just briefly recap um, 2 Kings chapter 2. I think I have um, verse 12. Is where we left off. Is that right? Does anybody mark that? So you guys mark it in your Bible when we leave tonight. Because I'll forget next, next Wednesday. I kind of have a general idea. So Elijah... And Elisha are two famous prophets in the Old Testament. The um, Lots of corruption by this point in the priests of Israel. Um, the prophets were a different class of people. And sometimes those two offices, I think we get them confused in our mind. But the Bible talks about through the Old Testament periods, prophets and priests. Now the high priest was the guy that was in the office really of prophet. You'll kind of see it... Um, well, I guess there was prophets all the way through. We're going to get to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and Daniel. And, and all of these guys fit that class of prophet, but not priest. The priest was the guy who was actually in the temple that, that Solomon built, that was in charge of. And, and if you were from the tribe of Levi, you were a part of the priestly tribe. You would be in charge of the daily sacrifices, the cleaning, the, the, the ministry, the things that took place um, in Solomon's temple, in the temple, all the way 
way to the days of Jesus, lots of priests, once a year the high priest would go in and, and make those offerings. The prophet was a different office. And Elijah and Elisha that we see in the Bible are in this office of prophet. And so um, we, we have here, and what we're studying is we've been studying through First Kings, the life of Elijah. Now, I don't know why God made their names so exactly the same so we'd get, all get confused. But I always say Elijah comes before Elisha, and the way you remember is one's a J and one's an S, and J comes in the alphabet before Sha. And so oftentimes when I'm preaching about Elijah and Elisha, I'm giving credit to one or the other about the wrong miracle. I had a woman on Sunday, a couple Sundays ago, and I I said, Elijah did this and that, or Elijah made the axe head float on top of the water is one of the miracles he did. And she's like, Elisha did that, not Elijah. I was like, whoa. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I get them mixed up. But so Elisha comes after Elijah. And Elisha, Elijah is very interesting because he's one of only two people in human history that never faced physical death. Now, the Bible talks about in Revelation that um, God is during the seven year tribulation period that um, in, Re- in Revelation chapter 11, it's very clear. It's, it's not Chinese, easy to understand that God is going to bring back two witnesses and he's going to place them in front of the, the temple in Jerusalem. And they're going to prophesy for three and a half years. They're going to do miracles. It says that that the Antichrist is going to make war against them and he's going to prevail against them. And they're going to be they're going to be killed and their dead bodies. Bodies are going to lay on the streets of Jerusalem and the whole world will see it. Now, a hundred years ago, you could read that prophecy because that prophecy is is 2000 years old. And you could say, how could they lay on the streets of Jerusalem and the whole world see it? You could mock that right today. You don't even think twice. You don't even think twice. But for 1900 years, you could read that prophecy and kind of scratch your head. How would the whole world see these two prophets lying dead in front of and that after three days, God is going to raise them back to life. Now, there's always discussion of, of who these two witnesses are. And, and it's um, it's pretty commonly believed because of something that Jesus said that Elijah is one of the prophets. And it makes sense because he never faced physical death. The Bible says it's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. And then the other person in human history is Enoch, who... Enoch um, never tasted death. He walked with God in Genesis uh, chapter 3, and God took him. He was not because God took him. So um, a lot of people would say that it just makes sense that God reserved these two people to be in the in front of the temple. They'll die physically, fulfilling that other thing, and then they'll... Um, you know, join the rest of us. But um, there is a pretty good case. I happen to be in this camp that and it doesn't really matter. Right. It's, but it is fun. Um, I think you can make a pretty good biblical case for Elijah. I don't think too many people argue which Elijah. One of the things is these these two guys in Revelation, they, they do certain miracles and certain things that they do. And, and one of them does exactly the things that Elijah did in the Old Testament. And the other one does exactly the things that Moses did in the Old Testament. And, and so. Um, that, you know, you have three choices, Elijah, Moses and Enoch, and you can land wherever you want. Most people agree on Elijah and kind of argue about the other two. And I'm in the Moses camp just because, again, the, 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 the um, Enoch doesn't really I don't know. He doesn't fit that. The only part of that makes Enoch fit is that he didn't die. But the, the interesting thing about Moses is you guys remember when Moses died, that the Bible says that Satan and Gabriel or Michael. Lydia, she's watching Facebook. 
Michael, Gabriel, or Satan and, and Michael fought over the body of Moses. So there was some contention over the body. Why would they fight over the body? Because, okay, sorry. All right. All right. So we're there. So Elisha and Elijah. So Elisha is going to be taken up in a fiery chariot. Elijah is going to see him go. The mantle is going to switch and the office is going to switch. Uh, let's go like, okay, verse 10 to kind of catch up. So it says, chapter 2, verse 10. So he said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so. But if not, it shall not be so. Actually, let's 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 back that up. Uh, Verse number nine, it says, and so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I may do for you before I am taken away from you. And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So he said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. And then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven and Elijah saw it and he cried out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen. So he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes, and he tore them into two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah, which would be like his cloak, his clothes that had fallen from him. And he went back, and he stood by the bank of the Jordan. And then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he struck the water, and he said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elisha crossed over. Now, Elisha just did the same miracle on their way this side of the water in the Jordan, and he struck it and it parted, and they both went through together, and now he's going back. He does the same thing. Uh, more miracles will be recorded of Elijah. Um, Elisha, the one who's going to take over them, was Elijah. Now, in verse number 10 or 11, it says, that he wanted a double portion of what Elijah had. So he said, well, ask what you want. And he said, I want a double portion. And what does that mean? I want a double blessing. I want to be used by God in my life. You know, I, I look at some other men and women. You know, I think of my own pastor, Lydia's dad. Um, and, and, you know, my pastor is, I, I want what he has. You know, I want a double portion of, of the ministry and the life that, you know, I've seen God use him in such a mighty way as my mentor or my pastor. And I think, man, I want what he has. I want a double portion. And I think maybe sometimes in ministry and life we, we can see people that, that God is using and, and we envy that or we enjoy that about them. And we, we want that. We want what God has for us. We want to be used by God. And Elijah, uh, Elisha wanted to be used by God in the way that he saw his mentor, Elisha, being used. And he said, I want a double portion. But I think that the, the, the problem and the issue is that there, there was some cost. And if you guys remember, we didn't read it now. Um, we read it last week. So if you'll remember back to last week, um, what, what happened just prior in the, in the chapter was Eli, Elijah said, I'm going to this city. Why don't you stay here, Elisha? And Elisha said, no way, I'm going with you. And he said, OK, whatever, but I'm, I'm leaving. And so Elijah left and Elisha followed him. And they got to the city and, and Elijah said to Elisha, I'm going on to this next city. You stay here. Don't follow me. And he was a matter of fact, I don't want you to follow me. You stay here. And Elisha said, no, wherever you go, I'm going. And where you set your foot, I'll set my foot. And I am going with you. And he followed him to the next city. And this happened four times as Elijah every time told Elisha, don't come. Don't follow me. Stay here. 
But Elisha was willing to follow his mentor wherever he went. He was willing to put in the work. And each one of those cities, you know, we could make a, 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 a case. And then some of this stuff is little spiritualization, and we got to be careful with a little bit. But I think it does make kind of a good point. But if you look at the four cities that Elisha followed Elijah to, every one of them has some biblical meaning. So if we look at the biblical meaning, the first one was um, Gilgal, where, where Elijah went, where, where he was going to follow him. And Gilgal, is, it means purification. So part of walking with Jesus, part of a double um, anointing and a double blessing is, is that we have to live lives that are purified before God. We have to roll away the flesh, circumcise, repent, get, and live right with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, part of our... Um, Part of our being Christ-like and part of our living as Christian folks is that we, we have to repent of sins. We have to admit sin. We have to deal with sin in our lives. The Bible is so clear and so full of it. Unfortunately, we do live in a day where, you know, so many churches won't preach sin. They won't preach us dealing with sin and, 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 and uh, reconciling and forgiving or even talk about what sin is in our lives. And instead, every, every sermon is, you know, David and Goliath and how, how you're David in the story and you're this great hero. And, you know, you're like the faith of David that threw the stones at Goliath. And, you know, I, let me tell you that that's not this church. And those feel good. You leave the sun, you leave every Sunday and you feel good and you feel good about yourself and charged up. But, Really, it's just not, it's not exegesis. It's not good preaching from the Word of God. You're not David in the story. I'm sorry. You know who you are in the story? You're the scared Israelite on the side of the mountain, one knee smoting the other, that wouldn't go fight the, the, the giant until Jesus showed up in your life. And Jesus is the hero of the story, not you. And Jesus is the one who shows up and fights the giant in your life and fights Goliath. And so again, you know, we're, we're, we're not David in the story. But, Dealing with sin. You know, we talked about on Sunday in Hebrews and it's just a verse. We read it and we just talked about what it said. Like we're not looking, we're not poking, we're not needlessly offending people. I'm not a hellfire and brimstone message. The message is still the same. The love of Jesus that it's the Bible says it's the love of Jesus that compels you. So all the all the um, making you feel bad about yourselves and guilt trips in the world. You know, we don't preach guilt trips either because a guilt trip lasts between now to the time you hit the button on the key fob in your car in the parking lot and you got lunch on the mind or what's next. And and, and the Bible talks about the guilt trips don't motivate anybody. It's the love of Jesus. When you respond to the love of God, that's what motivates you to want to live a purified life. Because that God loves you so much that he did so much for you, that he died for you, that he rose again. And you want to naturally respond to that. But we have to be a people. We read the verse on Sunday in, in Hebrews last Sunday. And it says that, that the sexually immoral, God will judge. That's what it says. So I don't, I don't write the news, I just deliver it. And so what did we say on Sunday? We skipped over that because that will make people feel bad. No, we beat them up and then we told them Jesus loved them. And we told them the truth. The Bible says if you're, if you're sexually immoral, God, God will judge you. There's, there's a price to pay for sin. So if you are, get right. Any sex outside of marriage is sin. Any, anything in your life, that, and, and it's not because God doesn't love you. It's because he does love you as a child. He loves you as, as, as a son, as a daughter. And when you, when you understand as a parent how you would treat your own children that were playing in the street, you tell them, get your butt out of the street. It's not safe. And God says, hey, cut that out. That's not safe. So Bethel, the first place they go, or I'm sorry, Gilgal, purification. So again, you know, um, I heard a pastor say one time, 
a Jewish guy. He said that, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be a conduit that continually flows between you and God. And, and the reason why it struck me, I think, because at the time, I was always under the impression I, I tried to be religious about praying before I went to bed at night. And so when I'd say my nightly prayers, that's the time where I would, I would confess my sins before God, ask him to forgive me, try to get this point in my life where I was trying to get right with God. And um, I would kind of store it all up and then save it. And he just said, no, when there's something in your life and you want to get something right with God, just constantly asking God to forgive you. And, and you know, what does repent mean? Basically, it just means to acknowledge that, that your sin is against God, that you've broken the heart of God and that it's, it's against the will of God and you confess it. And the, the, the awesome thing is, the Bible says that if you will be faithful to confess your sins, John tells us in First John, that God will be faithful to forgive your sins. It's that simple. You ask for forgiveness, God will forgive you. He'll put it as far as the east is from the west. Stop reminding him about it because he already forgot about it. He doesn't even know it anymore. And of course, you know, I'm not going to preach the other side of that tonight. But People say, well, doesn't that give people a, a license or a liberty for sin? No, Paul deals with that. It's not how it works. It works exactly the opposite. When you when you live under the um, the amazing grace of God and the forgiveness of God, it motivates you to live right, not not the opposite. It doesn't give you a license just to sin. You know, you hear people say that. Oh, I'm just going to go sin and God will forgive me. Well, it doesn't work that way, but God will forgive you. But the problem is you, you have to ask and you have to have a heart that 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 wants that's repentant. And when you get to that point, then God forgives you. And when you, when you sin willfully and you just go out with that, that, that willy-nilly attitude, you don't really come to that place in your life where you ask and want forgiveness. All right, the second place they go to is Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. And in this place, we see where Elijah brings um, and, and Elisha uh, revelation. So, you know, one of the things that I preach often, often, often is read your Bible and pray every day. And just how important it is to have personal, intimate devotion with God through the word of God, through reading, through studying. And so we see in um, the city of Bethel, which means house of God, a revelation, study, pray, prepare. And then they go to Jericho. And in Jericho, Jericho in the Bible is a place of confrontation. And so... Um, just confronting, again, the things in our lives that we deal with. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And then they go to, they cross the Jordan. And the Jordan in the Bible is expectations. And, and just the expect, expectation of God working in your life. That's the faith part of our life. That we live by faith. And that we, we have an expectation to see God show up in our lives. And we, we have an expectation to see God answer our prayers. And, you know, relationally and, and, and through living a life of faith in Jesus that we, we have and we live expectant. And then, um, you know, and, and all this, you guys, is to, is to say that when we want, if you want all that God has for you, you know, you want God to bless you, you want God to show up in your life, then, then there are some certain things that he asks us, that he calls of us to do. And you can't expect a garden with all kinds of fruit in it if you don't plant, if you don't take the weeds out, if you don't do the things you need to do to cultivate, to grow fruit. You don't throw seeds out tonight and eat strawberries tomorrow. God does want to bless your life. You know, one of the things that frustrates me the most is people blame God when bad things happen in their lives. But these same people, they didn't want nothing to do with God. They don't love God. They don't serve God. They, 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 they have no faith in God, but yet they, they want to be the first ones to blame God when something bad happens in their lives. 
But I don't know. I don't think you get to, to, to not love God, not serve God, not want God in your life, and then get to blame him for everything bad that happens. It doesn't make sense. You know, and part of the deal is, too, as a parent, right, if, if your son or daughter, you know, burns themselves on the stove or something, and they're very angry at you because they burnt their hand, and you told them like 27 times, get away from there, you're going to burn your hand. Stop. You know, you stood in front of it like this, kicked them when they came by. And then somehow they got through you and burned their hand, and now they're mad at you because they burnt their hand. And you're like, I've done everything to keep you from burning your hand. I told you I love you. I didn't want you to burn your hand. <laughs> Not my fault you burnt your hand. It's your own stupid fault. You know, and, God, and then again, you know, I'm trying to be careful. But God, in a way, God has put so many roadblocks in our lives, and we, and we just ignore everything that he says and everything that he lays out for us and, and is put in a place because he loves us, and then we're angry when things go wrong. We don't get to do that. So Elijah wanted a double portion. He's going to get it. And, and he also, but he also put in the work and he was willing to do it. It's going to say later that Elijah, Elisha was somebody who washed the hands of Elijah. They're looking for a prophet in the next chapter. And they said, well, there's this prophet Elijah, Elisha. He washed the hands of Elijah. Everybody knew who Elijah was. But that just means that he served him. He served him for lots of years. He washed his hands. He ministered to him. He was there with him. He did ministry with him. He did life with him. He played second fiddle for a long time. You know, I can remember wanting um, so bad. I was a basketball official in a life before this one. Um, And uh, for 15 years, and I did college and high school basketball. When I was first coming up in in the ranks, I I, I was like begging my assigner to give me the big game. League championships, you know, Palm Springs versus Palm Desert, 4,000 people in the gym going crazy. And... um, you know, I just thought I deserved to be there. I just wanted to be there so bad. I wanted the big game. And a couple of years in a row, I never got it, never got it, never got it. And then finally, I got my big break. League championships, big, hugest stage I've ever been on as a basketball official. And I was so scared. I was so scared. And it was such a, oh, a daunting task. And I was so thankful when it was all over <clears throat> that I didn't get the opportunity sooner because I wasn't ready and that, that I had a couple more years to get ready to, to, to get on that stage and, you know, eventually did some state championships and some other things and moved up. But, but thankful that I, I got to wait and get prepared and trained to do those things. You guys remember King David, um, famous story in King David. They were off at war and King David was at home. And these two guys wanted to, to go tell King David what the news was and what happened in the battle. And David was very concerned. His son was there. And, and so this one guy says to Joab, the general, he says, can I go tell David? The problem was the guy didn't know what the information was, but he was a fast runner. And, and Joab says, no, you, you don't even know what the story is. You don't even have the message. And then he tells the other guy who has the message, you have the message, you can go run. So the guy takes off and he starts running to tell King David the message. And the other guy just keeps bugging Joab. Can I go? Can I run? Can I run? Can I run? Can I go? And Joab finally is like, okay, fine, dude, run. So the guy takes off. He passes the other guy, and David's scouts are there in the, in the, in the, in the castle, in, their, in the palace, whatever it was, and they're seeing these guys run at him. And the guy's like, hey, David, two runners are coming. And one looks like Hathafel, and the other one looks like Jonajo, whatever his name was. And, and so the, the, the fast guy gets there first, and David is like so excited. He's like, okay, what happened? What's, what's the news? And the guy's like, well, uh, uh, well things are going okay. I don't really have a message, but, you know, he kind of tries to make some stuff up, but he didn't have the information that King David wanted. And David said, step aside, get out of the way. And the slower guy came. 
And the idea is that we want to sometimes run for the Lord, but we, we don't have the message. And there's a, there's a time of training, there's a time of preparation where God prepares our hearts for those things. All right, let's, let's pick up our story in verse 15. That was a lot, you guys. That was a whole sermon worth of, of kind of continuation from last week. Verse 15 says, Now when the sons of the prophets who were, who were from Jericho saw him, they said the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. So the people witnessed the, the double um, portion blessing and the mantle being changed now. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Then they said to him, look now, we are 50 strong men with your servants. Please let them go and search for your master, lest perhaps the spirit of the Lord has taken him and up and cast him upon the same mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send anyone. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send them. Therefore, they sent 50 men and they searched for three days, but they did not find him. Three days is always an interesting number in the Bible because Jesus was in the um, in the grave for three days before he rose again. And when they came back to him, they had stayed at Jericho. And he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? So I guess Eli- Elisha would have that personality. I told you so. But these guys wanted to go. They're like, you know, maybe, maybe Elijah, when he was taken up, he landed on some mountain and he's out there cold and we need to go find him. And Elijah knew better. He was in heaven. He was gone. And he said, no, that's not the case. He's gone. And they kept bugging him. So he finally said, fine. Your wife ever say that to you guys? Fine. You know, that doesn't mean fine, right? Yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. When she says that. So he said, fine. And then they came back and she said, I told you so. And then the men of the city in verse 19 said to Elisha, please notice the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground barren. And he said, bring me a new bowl and and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And when he went out, the source of the water and cast the salt there and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed the water from it and there shall be no more death or barrenness. So the water remains healed to this day. And according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke, then he went up from there to Bethel as he was going up the road, some youths came. Now, this part, verse 23, let's stop there just for one second. Um, 17, I think, recorded miracles of Elisha, um, eight of Elijah. So when he asked for a double portion, he got exactly a double portion. What's interesting about Elisha is not only did the um, did he get twice as many miracles as Elijah, it didn't end when he died. When he died, there's a story that they buried his bones, Elijah's bones, and there was a war in the area and some guy died in the fight and they threw him in this hole. And when his body touched Elisha's bones, he stood up. So even God used him even after he was dead. And here we have the salt that's placed into this water. And how does salt water make fresh? Well, it's a miracle. You know, it's not a science experiment. It's just a miracle. And oftentimes, again, we, we see these little kind of hints. And, and, you know, what do you think of when you think of salt? If I use the term biblical term salt, I think of, you know, Jesus said, you are the salt of the world. That if the, that if the salt loses its flavor, it has no value. And that we are to be the salts of the world and that we're to be, you know, the restraining power and, and that you as Christian folks are, that's our call. That, that we make things, we purify things just by the salt. You know, the Bible says that, that the restrainer will be taken out. And, and, and people say, oh, well, because that happens right before the seven year tribulation period. Oh, that the Holy Spirit will be removed. Well, no. 
the Holy Spirit can't be removed. You can't read the seven-year tribulation period in Revelation 5 through 19. That doesn't happen without the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit can't be removed. So what does it mean that the restrainer, and the Holy Spirit is the restraining power that's holding back the evil. When you read Revelation, you see when, when, the, when, the, when the shackles are off of the world and it's no holds barred and, and the church is, is missing, the debauchery and the evil and the, the things that are taking place are paramount. They're never paralleled. And before in human history, it gets so bad. So what is the restrainer? or what is the, um, What does the Bible talk about? Well, I think it's talking about that the church, the church is removed. So part of the, the Christian church on planet Earth today acts as a restraint against evil. And, and it's, it's the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, but it's the Holy Spirit through the church. And that, that we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We are a city set on a hill that can't be hidden. Jesus said, let your light so shine and let it shine bright before men. But do it in such a way that when men see it, they give your Father glory in heaven. And so here we have this, again, this, this assault thing. Now this next um, story, I don't have a lot of commentary for it. It just is what it is. But in verse 23, it says, And he went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up the road, some youths. Now, the word youth there, it doesn't mean, um, the Hebrew word here actually means zero to 40 years old. It's any man who's younger than 40 years old could fit into that category of youth there. Came from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. So the kids are making fun of him, whether how old they are, I don't know. Maybe they are teenagers. And obviously, um, Jason and Elijah had, Elisha had something in common. They had beards and they were, um, bald headed. And, and so they're making fun of him, you know, bald head, bald head. I, when I was a kid, my brother had a friend and he broke my collarbone. Child abuse, right? I, I was laying on the couch crying for four hours that my shoulder hurt while my brother and his friend Ray, who hurt me, told me, shut up, you wimp, stop crying, stop crying, be quiet. And I just laid there until my mom got home. My mom finally took me to the doctor, and I got an x-ray, and my collarbone was broken in two. But my my brother's friend, his name was Ray, and he had red hair and freckles. And so, I don't know why, but we incessantly would, because it bothered him. If it didn't bother him, we probably would have left him alone. But we would chase him around and say, Ray, Ray, the red-headed blob, Ray, the red-headed blob. And, he got so tired of me calling him Ray, the redheaded blob. He started to chase me and I was running as fast as I could. And he caught up to me from behind and he just gave me a shove. And I was running full speed from behind. And I landed forward on my shoulder and busted my collarbone. And So not a good idea. These guys are, are, are finding Elijah. They thought it was fun and they were making fun of him, mocking him. And it says, so he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them. In the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youth. Yes, this is in your Bible. You didn't even know it. And then he went from there to Mount Carmel. And from there he returned to Samaria. Um, We we don't have like a ton of time to really unpack all this today. John Corson has a really good teaching on this. If you're interested, you go to John Corson's website in uh, 2 Kings. And he teaches the whole Sunday sermon on this two verses of of bearing up but um the the bears literally came out of the woods and elijah pronounced the curse on these 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 young people who were cursing him and mocking him and god exacted justice on them immediately and these I, you know it's funny because you read these stories in the bible but you think to yourself like if you unpack it like 42 young people 
and the bears come, two bears, two female bears come out of the woods. How did they corral 42 young people? You don't think that one of them would have got away? Like one of them would have just somehow, when they were eating the other 41, that one of them would have escaped, but apparently not. These were, these were corralling bears as well. And they were able to maul these 42 youths. Um, so I, I guess the moral of the story is don't make fun of the men of God. Don't say bad things about me. You never know. Chapter 3, I think we could do it. we got 10 minutes. And now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. Now, really quick, Jehoram, as we know, is the, is the son of, says there, Ahab. And who was Ahab's wife? Jezebel. We studied them, Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel were very wicked. Jezebel was the wickedest woman in Bible history, and we don't name our daughters Jezebel for that reason. Um, at least I hope we don't if we're Christians. Um, but so this is King Jehoram, and he's going to take over. And then um, Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah. And, and, and again, as you guys know, ten tribes in Israel's broken into two. Ten tribes in the north. Two tribes in the south. The tribes in the north went by Israel or the northern ten tribes. The tribes in the south went by Judah. Um, and, and, they, and, and the northern ten tribes never had a good king. So in all the successions of kings, they had someone that were okay. This guy's actually Jehoram. He did better than Ahab, but never do we say or did we have a good king in the north. The south um, had good and bad kings, and you watch the history of Israel, and it's like a roller coaster. They have a good king, and, and they're doing well. They're, they've gotten rid of the, the Baal and the Asherah worship and the pagan stuff that's going on that they're adopting from the, the communities around them, and, and things are going well, and God is blessing them, and God is showing up. And then a bad king, and he starts instituting pagan worship and idolatry, and, and you see the history of Israel again fading You know, the whole Old Testament really about this period, God is just so much to say about how the nations went whoring after other gods and and on and on and how God continued to call them and draw them. And um, so much of the Old Testament history goes this way. And in verse two, and he said, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and his mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from those sins. So what were the what was the difference? So he did good because he got rid of um, Baal worship. You guys remember Eli um, Jah had the duel with the prophets of Baal and he, he called 450 prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel and he had gathered all the people of Israel and he said, if Baal is God, then serve Baal. But if the Lord is God, then serve the Lord. But quit going back and forth between two gods. And then they had this contest and they said, whatever God is God will answer by fire and will make an altar. And the God that answers by fire is the true God. And the prophets of Baal went first and all day they prayed and, and they began to wail and began to cut themselves trying to call on the name of their God. And Elijah began to mock them. And then at the end, Elijah, it was Elijah's turn and he pray, prayed a simple prayer and, and he covered his altar with water and poured 12 buckets of water over the top of it and then prayed and asked God to, to supernaturally start the altar on fire. The fire from heaven fell and Elijah took these prophets of Baal, 450 of them, and he killed them. And then when, when Jezebel heard about it, 
she was she was none too happy that Elijah killed all of her prophets, and she got angry and she said that she was going to get um, Elijah. Remember what he did? He ran from one side of the country to the other, like Forrest Gump. Just took off running one day and never stopped. You know, he wasn't afraid of 450 prophets of Baal, but one wicked woman sent him running for the other side of the country. Well, um, so this king, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, he's going to um, have a connection to the southern kings. He's going to also be the son-in-law. He's going to marry the daughter of Jehoshaphat, who was the king in the south. So we'll see here in a minute a political alliance with the south. But he got rid of all that stuff. But what he didn't get rid of were the calves and the things, the golden things. It says um, in verse um, 3, it says the sins of Jeroboam. Now, what was the sin of Jeroboam? Now, if you guys remember, Jeroboam is the one who set up the worship centers in the north. Now, why did he do that? It was political. They didn't want the temple that Solomon built um, is in existence. This great temple has already been built. And, and so people are worshiping it. It's a place where God is to be worshipped. It's on the same site that the, the Moses' tabernacle was, was being held when David saw it there in Jerusalem. But the kings in the north were afraid that people would go to the south to worship the Lord and would migrate and they would lose constituents and votes and people and, and power. And so what they did was they set up um, worship in the north. But God never approved it and it wasn't, it wasn't counted. And so it was a political ploy to, to deceive the people and keep them from going to God's temple in the south in Jerusalem and stay in the north. And so this practice, he continued. He got rid of the Baals, but he continued this political practice. And now Misha, verse 4, king of Moab, was a sheep herder. And he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. So this would have been a, a, a tax um, from a pagan king that was, that was nearby. And it says, but it happened when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. He didn't know his son. And when Ahab died, this was a heavy tax. He, he said, forget it. I'm not paying this. So the king Jehoram went out of Samaria at the time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. You are my son-in-law and I will be there, you know, to help you because this is the political alliance where he married Jehoshaphat, or Jehoram's daughter, Jehoshaphat's daughter. And so they said they'll go. So then in verse 8 it says, which way shall we go up? Let's go. Which way do you want to go? And he answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the kings of Israel went with the kings of Judah and the king of Edom, and they marched on the roundabout route seven days, and there was no water for the army, nor did the animals that followed them, for the animals that followed them. So the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. So they're in bad shape. They're, they're out there. They're seven days journey into the deserts of Moab. And, you know, if you've been there or when we go there, we'll point out for you that what this place looks like today. And it is barren, no trees, just, I mean, not quite like a like a sand, like those sand dune pictures you see with nothing but sand. But it's similar to that, just dirt, nothing. And they're out there in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness. There's no water. And the and, and the other guys that are, you know, not really faithful and the guys from the north are say, great, the Lord has left us here. He's abandoned us here. He's brought us out here to die. 
And then Jehoshaphat, verse 12, said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of, of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Edom, went down to him. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, I missed 11. And then Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord? So Jehoshaphat, the king from the south, he, 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 he was the one that at least still had faith. The others didn't think to call on the Lord or seek the Lord in this situation. And, and Jehoshaphat said, well, what's, what's the matter, guys? Isn't there a prophet here that we can ask and, and seek? And so, you know, again, you know, praying is not a last resort, right? Oh, I've done everything else. I guess now I'll just pray. That's, 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 not, that's not the way we should process life as believers, you know, praying. You know, and I, I hear people too, right? What the world is going to say about you, about me, is that all you guys do is pray. You don't ever actually do anything, which is not true, first of all. But don't, don't ever let that, you know, weigh on you or, or, or don't let that, that, that argument persuade you. We are to be a people that pray, and praying is doing something. And praying is, is where everything happens, and we can't do anything until we pray. You know, and, and when we pray, then God can, can task us with do something stuff and, and put things on our heart that we can do practically and really. And, but we have to first pray. We always pray. And there's a power in prayer. So the other guys didn't even mention it. Jehoshaphat mentions it. And it's so one of the servants in verse of middle of 11 of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. I told you guys about that already and what that means. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Edom, went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the, those are the prophets of Baal that Elijah killed. But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. So Elisha had no love loss for the new king of the north, Ahab's son. And even though Ahab's son was not as bad as Ahab, Elijah still didn't respect him or see him as a God-fearing guy and, um, or a man of faith. And obviously wasn't because they never even thought to call on the Lord. And he said, if it wasn't for the presence of the king of the south, Jehoshaphat here, I wouldn't even look at you. In verse 15, but now bring me a musician. And then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. Oh, I love it when God's about to work. Hey, um... So, verse 15, what does it say? And what happened when the musician began to play? The hand of the Lord. You know, we, we use music in the same way today, right? When, when the musicians began to play, then the hand of the Lord began to move. And, and really, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Back home, I don't think that I felt always that I had to defend our worship as much as I felt that way here. Um, but but I do here, you know, because I think, again, it's different. It's different for some folks because they're not used to it or they've never seen it. And um, But it's biblical. I just say that. The way we worship, even our song choices, our style, our worship team vets, the music they use. They, um, you know, and the, the biblical prescription for worship is laid out in Psalm 150. And, and all the way through, you know, I, the, the two million Jews in, in leaving Egypt, worshiping the Lord in the desert, I'm sure they weren't standing still singing hymns. You know, they were rocking out, two million Jews, because the Bible says that let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. In Psalm 150, it, it lays out the prescription of the instruments that they were to use. 
and it says stringed instruments and harps and lures, lyres and 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 cymbals and clashing cymbals and loud cymbals. So it talks about percussion instruments, stringed instruments. It talks about all kinds of instruments that are be, to be used in the in the prescription of praising and worshiping the Lord. But but again, I think for us, you know, it, it's not even so much that that God is has a has a specific song choice or or genre that he likes that God loves hymns and doesn't like contemporary or he likes contemporary and doesn't like hymns or he likes the organ and doesn't like the drums. I I really none of that really matters, honestly, to the Lord. And, and, And biblically, you can't make a case that 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 that's so. And if you want to make a case, you can't get around Psalm 150. And in Psalm 150, he prescribes all kinds of um, trumpets as well and, and, and different instruments to be used. But really, the instrument is an instrument. The issue is the heart. And, and it's, it's preference. Like if, if your preference is hymns or slower music, then find a church that, that does hymns and slower music and, and worship the Lord there with your heart. Like that, that's not... The issue is not the style of music or the volume of the music. The issue is your heart connecting with God through, and and music is an avenue that God has given us that's prescribed biblically that we're going to do all of eternity. In in heaven, I'm not going to have a job. There's no preaching, there's no teaching in heaven. But but the worship team, they're going to be employed all through all of eternity because worship is something that we will continue to do through all of eternity with, with, with music. And, and again, it's God's heart. It's God's prescription. God is interested in the heart, not the genre, not the style. You know, kids don't like the music their parents like. And your kids don't like the music you like. You didn't like the music your parents liked. And one is not right and one is not wrong. It's, it's, an, it's a preference. It's an opinion. It's a style. And God definitely doesn't have a preferred music. Like God's not like, I like country music and I don't like rap. No. God likes your heart. And whatever music that, that makes your heart worship him, that's the kind of music he likes. You know, and it, and it varies, and you have that. You know, when when they when they were called to march around the the walls of Jericho for seven days, you remember how that went down? God said, "Put the worship team out front and let them play music and sing and worship the Lord as they march around the city." You know, it's like this big siege is going to take place. It's like the children had just crossed over the Jordan River. They, I mean, they've been slaves in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness. You know, kind of a daunting task, going to Canaan, modern Israel, 37 battles in front of them, conquer the land. Everywhere you set your foot, I've given you. And they're going in that. Now, the first big battle, walled city. The wall was 18 feet wide. They, they wrote chariots across the top of the walls in Jericho. And, 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 and Joshua goes away and he meets with the, with the Lord. And the Lord gives him this amazing battle plan. And he has to go back to a room of, of generals and leaders of the 12 tribes. And he has to sell them. He has to give them the plan. I'm sure they were pumped. Like, what did the Lord tell you? What's the battle plan? What are we going to do? Are we going to crash the wall? Are we going to use ladders and go over the top? Like, what, what's the battle plan, Joshua? And he says, well, we're going to do nothing. We're going to get the worship team and the priests. And we're going to put them out in front of the warriors and we're going to let them play music as we walk around the city and do nothing. Try to sell that to your generals. And they did. They let out with the worship and, and, and then God showed up and did a miracle. And so here we see again when the music played. Do you remember when King, King Saul was distressed? And, and this is something that is very biblical too. When, when there's a distressing spirit upon King Saul... The prescription was King David would come and play music beautifully for him. And every time David, the music began to play, the Bible says the distressing spirit left him. I would, I would, I would venture to say that the same would be true in your life and my life. 
when the distressing spirit is upon you, certain worship music, not, not, again, don't get it twisted in certain styles. It doesn't matter what your style is. Whatever your style is, you like, go for it. God's in it. But, but when, when you begin to worship the Lord through music, it's a prescription that heals depression, it heals problems, and distressing spirits will leave you when that happens. Can we finish, you guys? Just give me a minute. But, the, but now bring me a musician. Verse 16, he said, Thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. For the Lord says, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet the valley shall be filled with water, so that your cattle and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. Also you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city. And shall cut down every good tree and stop up every good water, spring of water, and the ruin every good, ruin every good piece of land with stones. And it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly water came by the way of Edom and the land was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings came up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms in order were gathered and they stood at the border. So we're going to, we're going to stop you guys. We'll just pick up in chapter four next week. Read those last like seven, eight verses tonight. Basically, they're going to win. God's going to show up and do a miracle as he always does. And they're going to win the fight. Amen. He's going to provide the water they need miraculously. And the soldiers are going to fight against this, this battle and win because God is with them. Father, we thank you. We praise you, God. We give you glory and honor. And Lord, we thank you that your word is true, Lord. We thank you, Father, that these stories are real. And Lord, that even as old as they are, they apply to our lives and they increase our faith. Lord, we can go into our day tomorrow knowing that you showed up when these men were seven days into the desert with no water and that you showed up miraculously and you provided water and you provided victory in their battles. And God, that you can provide the water and the source that we need of life. And Jesus, you said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and I will give him torrents of living water. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you provide and you give that living water. And you said that he who drinks of this water will never thirst again. And so, Jesus, we want to drink of that water, the living water, and never thirst again. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Love you guys. Have a great week.